Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm very proud to welcome David Lloyd Owen as my guest. David is the managing director of Envisager, a columnist for Global Water Intelligence, an advisor on several boards, and the author of Global Water Funding. In this book, David draws on his work for the OECD and his two previous ones to discuss global progress towards fulfilling SDG 6, alternative solutions to lack of funding, and the reasons why countries are failing at implementing safe and sustainable water and sanitation for all. This was, of course, the topic of our deep dive, and in a minute, David will explain how the world is not only late on achieving SDG 6, but also on aligning to simply start working on it. He'll then take us through the three possible paths to solve the global water funding challenge, getting more funds, adopting adapted water tariffs, and doing more with less. Spoiler, there's only one which is likely to happen. In our conversation, David shares some hope with success cases to replicate and warns us from tricky data considering that only the best pupils usually answer surveys. He'll explain how water is a political good that can serve much broader ambitions than just satisfy people's thirst, but also how Denmark, Chile or Singapore can be considered lighthouses on the quest towards SDG 6. We also discuss missing funding to maintain existing infrastructures, rising non-utility water that's an existential threat to utilities, reduction of non-revenue water as a low-hanging fruit, private versus public, decentralized treatments, reuse versus desalination, populism, next writing topics, and much more. To me, frankly speaking, this conversation is a cornerstone to comprehend the scene the water industry is playing in. If you like it as much as I liked David's book, please share it with your friends or colleagues, grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. You know, you don't have to steal a phone. You can also send them a message or post a link on social media. Come and do it for them and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to go to the deep dive today because I tell you, I loved your book. So now I spoil what it's all about. It's about your global water funding book. But just swiftly before we go to the, the hard matter, let's start with, with a little tiny postcard. So where are you right now? And what can you tell me about the place where you are? I'm in my library come study. I've been working at home since 1999. So in that sense, COVID has been business as usual. And I live on a house on the edge of a small market town in West Wales called Newcastle Emlyn. I left London 22 years ago to bring up our children here. So that makes already two reasons for me to call you a visionary. But uh, from your path, <laughs> there's something which is even more surprising, let's say. I saw that you started in sustainable and environmental finance, I would say, without spoiling your age, long before it was hype. So <laughs> can you get us through your path? That's true. I mean, I was 
Funnily enough, I was working for Paribas at the time, and I was a technology analyst and covering mobile phones, telephones, and um, electronic equipment for equity investors. And it was decided that Paribas' big project was going to be infrastructure. And I told the head of research, well, you know, my academic background was in the environment, in ecology, so why not put me onto water and waste management? And we did, and it took over from my original job. Uh, so in 1989, there was one tiny little equity fund. There was a group at James Capel, now part of HSBC, and another group, now part of UBS. But in both cases, they didn't really have a background. They were just simply analysts who had been told, do your job. Whereas I had a background, and it was a sort of a coming of beginning of the turning of a circle. And I stayed an analyst until 1995. And ever since then, I've been a consultant. So consultants on your own consultancy and a columnist, if I'm right. Yes, Envisager, which is a micro consultancy. And we have clients ranging from the World Bank to a company wanting to know about possible markets for their technology. And I write a column for Global Water Intelligence every month along with advising on, on, on the advisory board of Pictet's Water Fund, which is the world's first and largest equity fund dedicated to investing in water. And when did you come up with that idea of writing your latest book? What was the trigger? It actually goes back when the OECD in 2011 asked me to try and come up with a number Uh, what the costs for achieving universal access to safe water and safe sanitation would be. That was, in a sense, it was a, a quite lightly funded project, but I did it because it was just such an interesting one. And I was so horrified at the poor quality of information out there. As one consultancy, when reviewing all the estimates for the Millennium Development Goals put it, it looked like most of these were done on the back of an envelope. Um, that It also went back to two books I had published for Thomson's Reuters, 2006 and 2009, on water finance. But that was not global. That was just looking at a selected number of companies and very much more on the thing looking at you know, where's the opportunities and in investments, where are the opportunities for bonds, uh, debt facilities, etc. They all merged into this. And it, what happened was I had written a previous book on smart water, which was trying to give people an idea of the state of the art about digital water. That came out in 2018. And this seemed a logical progression. And it was the chance to completely revisit all the data I generated previously and to put it into one publication. And it's backed by this spreadsheet, which when I last looked at it, had something like a quarter of a million data cells. So it was quite intensive. So we'll go to the, the depth of the analysis of your book, but I'd like to start with the first chapter of your book, because You open the book with a deep dive into what the state of the world currently is and a lot of, let's say, background information. And you close that chapter by saying that that chapter should not exist, that you should not have to write that at this point in time. It should just be already old news. Why do you still have to write that chapter? What, what, what's the main reason 
why it's still not obvious all these elements that you you share here well putting it bluntly the sustainable development goal 6 for universal access to safe water and safe sanitation by 2030 i think the reasonable target for sdg 6 by 2030 would be that we have the capacity to start working on delivering it um, it turns out, for example, in the latest monitoring report, which came out a couple of weeks ago, that a large number of countries still don't even have an de accepted definition of what safe water is, let alone a program to install it. And various companies are still committing themselves just to installing basic or improved water, which is not what this is all about. Basic or improved water has no definition of safety, freedom from contamination, freedom from bacteria, lead, arsenic, and so on and so forth. So you might get water coming out of your tap, but I wouldn't recommend you drink it. And it's already been admitted that progress towards SDG 6 is running at a quarter of the level required. So the biggest challenge in SDG 6 is the personnel capacity and the staff on the ground in each country to be able to deliver the project and then the financial capacity the funding required to deliver the project so really i believe the next few years is first of all people admitting that they have not taken the process seriously until now and don't forget this goes back to program being run since 1980 and secondly how are they going to start addressing those gaps Talking of these programs which were run since the 1980, what you show in this introduction is that there were three series of programs, SDG being the third. And uh, if I get you right, the, the previous programs were somehow achieved, that somehow has to be defined. But there was also an increase in population, which resulted in, at the end of the day, clearly no results in line with the expectations. That's right. In terms of there been three main problems of the programs before. First of all, there's very much a emphasis on monitoring people who live in formal settlements. So the informal settlements, they just are very poorly monitored. And considering how many people in developing economies live in informal settlements, that means there's a great void in the data. Secondly, when you look at the various reports over the years and you cross-reference them, you realize the numbers have been rebased quite a lot. Um, how much confidence can we have in the numbers? is again open to debate. And then really, we've only started to look at capacities and capabilities and so on in a critical manner, really since about 2011, and systematically since 2015. And in every case, you have to get the data, the information back from the countries. If they don't wish to participate, all we can do is make guesses. I cannot understand why a country would not wish to participate, but um, there are some quite odd regimes out there. That's something that struck me in your book is that uh, you several times have some, some parts of the puzzle where you say there's a dozen countries that filled the data. So you know that there's a, a gap, which is about 90% of the data missing. And you also regularly explain that probably the ones that answered are not the worst because if you're the good pupil, you, you tend to answer. And I guess if you're the bad pupil, you just skip the test. That is a distinct problem. I mean, for example, one of the most useful sources of information we have is what's, what's called the Blue Book, 
and the database which underlines that, which is IBNet, which is helped managed by the World Bank, which allows utilities to report back that whatever reporting criteria they wish to. So those, in a sense, the ones which do report back are outside the developing world, which too often disdains to join the project. Um, you know, there's no participation from virtually any country in the EU or even in Britain. So that side you have to just set aside. But yes, what you realize is the better the utility, the more likely they are to participate. So we have this core, in a sense, of companies and utilities who are willing to participate, willing to disclose, willing to show their failings. And then underneath that, you have, rather like the iceberg, this mass of utilities, which maybe they just, they, they very probably, not only if they're poorly performing, they don't know how they're perfor- poorly performing. They simply do not know how much water they deliver each day or how many customers they have. So yes, in a sense, we have to base our understandings on the best data we can get, irrespective of its failings. So based on this best data we can get, you just mentioned that we are roughly doing one quarter of what we should if we want to achieve SDG 6, which is our current goal for 2030 and according to you, probably for 2050. My question here is you explore three avenues. The first is getting more funding. The second is getting a tarification which would cover the utility costs and more, and we'll, we'll dive a bit deeper into that in a second. And the third is making more with less. How can we re- reduce the need for funding? Let, let's start with the one which, in my opinion, is going to be the fastest, getting more funds. That's not happening, right? No. And it has to be said, with climate change and with COVID, you have to understand that every government at the moment has has to make hard decisions. And Water is always going to be down on the agenda politically for reasons which I can rationalize, but I cannot comprehend. Water is not politically important. What would be your your rationalization here? I think because it's taken for granted. One of the problems in particular is you get governments which don't like to charge for water. Of course, they charge for water. They charge your taxes and your rates and so on, but they don't charge. Secondly, there are a number of governments, uh, water is a very useful thing to control. It employs a lot of people, it has a lot of influence, and so on and so forth. So it's something that they like just to keep to themselves. And finally, I fear the biggest challenge we have is the sheer scale of incomprehension about water. When you look at telephones, electricity, things like this, you can go and order a handbook which will probably come out every year, which will give you a systematic breakdown globally about these services. Some private entrepreneurs have tried to do something like that for water, but in reality, the quality of the data wouldn't allow it. For me, one of the chief problems, there was a great expression used by Karen Backer, an academic. She called water an uncooperative commodity. Now, This means that people are very reluctant to charge the appropriate price for water to reflect its worth. And so water is systemically undervalued. And because it's not seen to be correctly valued, the political will to fund it correctly 
it's quite difficult to mobilize. The other particular problem that makes water unique is the fact that because of this low cost, uh, it means that it's economically very difficult normally to justify transferring water from one river basin to another. And that means that every river basin is isolated and the sector is far, far more fragmented. Even in a country like Britain, a relatively compact country, you have in England and Wales effectively 10 natural river basins and lots of sub-river basins within that. So that's 6 million people per basin. Now, for electricity companies, you'd have far more people being served and so on and so forth. And when you look outside uh, into areas where population densities are smaller, America is served by 52,000 water utilities. In France, it's quite interesting because it's quite, on one level, it's quite consolidated. That maybe 70% of the water sector is run by Suez, Veola, and Saw. But within that, you have something like, if my memory served me rightly, seven, seven to 10,000 individual municipal contracts. That means you've got an awful lot of small utilities with relatively limited management and relatively limited influence. So the entire nature of water makes it particularly challenging for people to take it seriously and to consider the funding seriously. So that was the, let's say, idealistic avenue where we say the nice amount of funding may be appearing now, and you just covered why that's simply not happening. The one which I honestly don't get is you, you deploy in your book a full rational around the water tariffs, explaining what affordability means, because there's this right, human rights to affordable water, so we have to define what affordable is. And then you have this, this affordable tariffs, you have your reasonable affordable tariffs, and then you have the political tariffs. And I don't get why people don't get that they have to pay for their water at the right cost if we are speaking here of 2.5 to 3% of their income. So how did you calculate that affordability? And let me do a four-in-one question because I also read your, your column in GWI on, on that topic where you said that most of the time when people are going to define affordability, they simply take what they're currently paying and they say, hey, that's affordable. One cent more is not and one cent less is not enough. So can you define affordability? Oddly enough, for the first time ever, the World Health Organization started to consider what actually affordability means. And a study came out about a couple of months ago trying to define affordability. Because until now, it's always just been taken as a magic figure. And really, it actually boils down to two numbers. One, percentage of household income. And two, time. So those without access to water, you have to factor in the time they would gain from having a tap within their household. And generally speaking, 1% to 3% is the normal bandwidth for affordability. But you have to take into account, of course, that people are a lot poorer within a society. So you also have to take a look at the poorest 20%. And there, perhaps 5% of household income should be the limit of affordability. But so you, you took that bar, which is the reasonable limit for affordability, but in the book, you somehow divide it still by two and say that is affordable tariff, but you still have another tariff, which is the 
political tariff, which is again about twice lower. Yes, well, that is the problem. You see, that there's one thing which is a proper tariff, and then there's the other tariff which the politicians might allow you to charge. And so, what my point there being, especially with populism, for example, in Ireland, a few years ago, they tried to bring in tariffs, and people were outraged. Of course, it was completely absurd because they were already paying through their rates, their taxes. And this is one of the absurdities about it. I personally think it's far better to have all the costs coming through the tariffs where it's visible and people know what they're getting from their water rather than money shuffling from one department to another and somehow or other the budget being made. It's much much more transparent process. It means you know what you're paying for, you know what you're getting for what you're paying for. And one of the chief problems we have in water is engaging customers, engaging the public, uh, and making them trust their water. So even in some extremely well-run utilities, you have large numbers of people still treating their water at home or boiling it. Um, maybe because it's, and it's quite perverse, but I have been told that one of the drivers for that is that people think, well, our water's so cheap, so it can't be clean. You take the other extreme, though, in Denmark, which is the most expensive water in the world, you will find there, first of all, because it's expensive, it's used very carefully, it's treated to an exceptional standard. Even the rainwater, which runs into a collection network, goes through full tertiary treatment before it's reintroduced back into natural environment. And because they are paying for everything up front in their tariffs, People know, yes, this is expensive, but we support it because we are getting a service which we explicitly trust. And also, because there's a very high degree of disclosure in Denmark, every single utility gives all these performance metrics about it. Uh, people, again, they trust it. They say, okay, this is expensive, but I'm getting good value for money. That's the example you give in the book of that lager beer advertising, this reassuringly expensive, so it's playing on the Veblen good somehow. What really puzzles me here is that you give so many good reasons to go for right tariffs, and it's not like rocket science, everybody gets that. But still, the world spends 425 to 475 billion dollars a year in water subsidies, which means at the end of the day, as you just said, it's still taxpayer money. So... If it would create somehow a virtuous circle, because if it's more expensive, then you cover for your cost and you can invest and you care much more about water and you trust much more water because it is reassuringly expensive. How can still all the political decisions still be driven by, by this, pardon my French, stupid approach of political tariffs? Ah. I wish I could give you a rational answer. Uh, and it is extraordinarily rational. It's, I mean, I remember once there's this impassioned debate which is going on about the right to water. And actually, the United Nations has a problem here because they have these special rapporteur for water. And first of all, the rapporteurs have a phobia about the private sector. And so they, they're very comfortable with the status quo. And secondly, it's this thing about the human right to water, which a lot of campaigners have tried to modify, hijack even, by saying the human right to free water. And you know, there's still a very powerful, well-funded, aggressive lobby which demands that people should get their water for nothing. 
which A, is inherently absurd, and, and, and B, free water, free dysentery, free cholera. You know, we can throw lots of things in with that free water if you want, but I wouldn't want it. So, yes, and the, the, as far as I'm concerned, the case is incontrovertible, but we do think there is just something irrational about water management. Bringing all that in maybe a bit more rational terms then, then you, you cite a, a GWI study from 2011, which shows that the world spends $173 billion a year on CAPEX and OPEX for municipal water and sanitation. So far, it's just a number. But your analysis is that is not even covering the maintenance of the current assets. So we're not speaking of not achieving the SDG 6. We are speaking of a degradation of the quality of service over time because we are not able to cover for the cost. So how can we make the situation better if actually we're just spending not even enough to keep it as it is? First of all, I think it's information. Because so countries, for example, will say, yes, we have this many sewage treatment works, which treat the sewage of that many people. What they're not telling us is how many of those sewage treatment works actually operate, how many are broken down, how many are performing to an unsatisfactory standard. Take that across to all aspects of the water cycle. So what we need to do somehow is to inform the public This is the state of play. This is what's going on. This is the reality. Are you happy with that reality? Or do you want to change it? Sometimes it is quite strange. You know, particular governments have particular approaches. Chile had genuinely third world water services in 1965. Now their water services will happily stand comparison with most northern European countries. Um, there was a 30-year complete top-to-bottom transformation of their services. So, for example, there was 0% sewage treatment until the 1990s. Now it's 100%, of which 78% is what I would call proper sewage treatment. And water and sewer ridge are universal, and so on and so forth. Uh, there it was a government program. It was actually somewhat controversial because it was linked to privatization in the late stages. But a strong regulator, strong oversight, strong amount of information. And the public got a demonstrably improved service. So I would imagine your average Chilean feels, in a, in a sense, quite smug when they look over the Andes at their Argentinian neighbors Water there is a highly political subject, and all I can say is that their services are of an order poorer. Which makes me think that you're advocating here for a system which reminds me of what Revit Levy on that microphone defined us or explained us about how the water is managed in Israel with a national approach to water and then case by case adaptation to that national approach, but always an overarching national approach, which kind of contradicts what you were saying at the beginning, that we have a water sector which is scattered by nature, by the river basins. So is it really something that can be adopted, or is it because of the specific nature of, of Chile, where with the end, maybe <laughs> the geography is helping a bit? Yes, I mean, there are certain countries where they have, where politicians have realized 
they face existential challenges when it comes to water. So Israel, they realize, no, here we are. We are building this country in an extremely arid area. And so Israel now leads the world, for example, on water reuse. Singapore, when it became independent from Malaysia in 1965, the Malaysian prime minister said, if you step out of line with us on foreign policy or so on and so forth, we reserve the right to turn the tap off. Because at that time, 70-80% of Singapore's water came across from Malaysia in a big pipe. Uh, Singapore's aim now is by 2060, when its current contract runs, with Malaysia runs out, is to be completely self-sufficient in water. So water self-sufficiency and water security was from pretty well from Independence Day a government priority. And back in 1965, Singapore had, again, you know, an, an average, perfectly reasonable but inadequate water and wastewater infrastructure. Today, it has one of the world's best because of concerted political will, plus educating the public, making sure the public was aware why we have to do this. So it's about realizing the emergency because you gave us two examples, Singapore, Israel, for them, it's pressing. If they don't do anything about water, they're in big trouble. But when you look at the projections of where we will be landing in the next decades with water scarcity, rising population, climate change, the water stress is going to be a bit everywhere, which may then be, if I'm very, with a bit of cynicism, I, I could say it's a positive thing. Everybody's going to realize how important water is. And maybe finally we manage the water cycle. It's possible. But then I guess the warning there would be consider climate change. As far as I'm concerned, we have been in a climate crisis for three, possibly four decades. We're now getting to the point where some politicians might actually acknowledge there's a problem. If we had taken action three decades ago, we would not be where we are today. But uh, again, it's taking big, difficult decisions. And of course, the whole thing about politics is you're thinking about the next election. Or if you're a dictatorship, you're thinking about your next mistress your next palace. Uh, you're not thinking about things like water, climate change, infrastructure, the big picture. And there's a lack of understanding that difficult things have to be done. Long-term projects have to be completed. What struck me by reading your book is that what you just explained about the importance of having this global approach, as it is not present, well, there is alternative solutions which are popping out. And these alternative solution is that, well, if you don't get the water from the utility, maybe you can get the water from somewhere else. And that somewhere else maybe point of use, point of entry, as you describe it, but also bottled water, which is clearly the, the dominant player there. And what you show is that there is a switch in power there because by the end of our SDG period, well, non-utility water will attract more funding than utility water, but more funding for, for less water as well. So if we're able to afford non-utility water, can't we just, I mean, that is now very, very, very theoretical thinking, but can we not just not derive that money and, and fund utility water, which is more efficient at the end of the day? Yes, it's one of the great ironies. I mean, apparently uh, more money is spent now on bottled water in California than on tap water. And, of course, one of the strange things is bottled water, for example, in America, is not subject to regulation. So if you want to get sick, drink bottled water. 
if you want healthy water, have a properly funded, properly managed utility. The, the warning there is that if utilities are unable to deliver water which people trust, then people will just have to use, will use alternative sources. And ultimately, you start to create a negative spiral. Because then if that means they're spending their money on other sources of water, then there's still less funding available to the utility. So you have to break that cycle. And again, you have to acknowledge, they have to acknowledge that this is an existential threat. So, so far, <laughs> it's not very positive what we are discussing. We've seen that from the two path, getting more money is not happening. Getting affordable tariffs is not happening neither. So that leaves us with the, the third and last option, which is do more with less. And actually doing more with less, as we shortly alluded to with the, the, uh, the utilities not getting the money they need to cover the infrastructure, well, that's some, another figure which you share, which shows that their free cash flow went from 121% of the operating costs to 108% of the operating costs in the decade, so between 2000 and 2010. What would be a right target in terms of percentage of the operating costs that they shall reach in order to, to sustain what they're doing and to be able to have a bit of investment capacity? It all depends really how much uh, capital work you're having to do. Now, there, there are two classic definitions of water tariffs. There's the full cost recovery, where you cover 100% of your operating tariffs and you have enough money over that to fund all your capital work. That means you might be paying some of it straight up now and you might be raising debt and paying the interest on that date, debt and repaying that debt over a period of time. Then you have sustainable cost recovery where you cover all your operating costs, but you, your capital costs will be from your surplus and from um, grants and so on and aid and whatever. That's is for developing countries to try and make water more affordable, where they do have alternative sources of funding. Generally speaking, you should be something like 140 to 160% of your operating costs. Now, the, the caveat here, and it is a big caveat, is let's say, just imagine SDG 6 succeeds at some point in the future. That means we're going to have a great deal more assets than we used to in the past. That means you've got to go a great deal more to operate and maintain and manage and renew and upgrade and replace. So, of course, the more you achieve, the more you have, uh, more assets you'll have to manage. But generally speaking, 140 to 160% looks a sensible sort of figure, unless you're doing a particularly capital intensive phase and may, maybe you have to pay extra. So that means that, as we saw, that it's not going to be higher in terms of income. We have to reduce the cost. And you give several ways to reduce the cost. To say we have this 108% on average. If you want to bring it to 140 to 160, as you just explained, as you cannot move with the, the total, let's play with the divider. And playing with the divider may take many shapes and you, you explore several avenues. There's one which comes quite regularly in the book. I mean, it's several different points and chapters, it's working with, with local workers and local, yeah, the, to, to have kind of a partnership between the utility 
and the local worker. You give us several examples. You give a study from the, the World Health Organization. You give an example for, from India. But the one that struck me the most, I had to say, is, is your Suez case study in La Paz, Bolivia, where you show that they were literally cutting the costs in terms of, of household connections by using, using local labor. And cutting the cost doesn't just mean you have less cost. It means more connections for the same amount of money. And you also showed something which, which reflects with what you were saying earlier, that there's a 60% increase in the community support. So people take ownership, which I would coin like, you know, the, the IKEA effect. When you're building an IKEA shelf, all of a sudden it, it's much more beautiful than it really is just because you build it with your own ends. What I'd like to understand here is what is this local labor? How does that work? What do they actually do? It would be a case of, let's say you're wishing to lay a sewer scheme to an unconnected area. The, you'd get in engineers and so on and so forth who would teach people, tell people what they need to do. So what the community is, com is committing is time, time which would normally be paid for by external contractors and so on and so forth. So the digging, the laying, and so on and so forth. All that manual labor, which normally would have to be paid for externally, is now being donated by the community towards the project. Uh, and again, this has been very much the uh, approach taken in Pakistan and in India. And as you say, you know, because you're donating time and effort and sweat into a project, you acquire a sense of ownership, even even if it is being managed by somebody else. You, know, you can say, right, well, we now have a tap and a lavatory which works uh, in our house, and we have safe water. My children are healthy. Nobody has to waste time collecting water or going out to a latrine block or anything, and that's been done on my own back. That, in a sense, is ownership. You also show with your, your, your case studies around, I think it was India, that the quality is even better because uh, the latrines built by a contractor are built, I guess, to cost. Whereas if you're building your own latrines for your village or for your community, then all of a sudden they're much better, which means they're also more used. So there's different levels of acceptance, which sounds like a perfect way to go. Yes, I mean, it, it does. There are a lot of good case studies. And of course, it does depend on things. You've got to have the right equipment and make sure that it's the best equipment for the job, the most appropriate equipment for the job, and you need the right supervision to make sure that everything is done correctly. But because of that sense of ownership, you want to do the job well, whereas a contractor may be just rather more interested in getting the job done, ticking a box, and walking away with a nice big fat check. So that is a way to cut at least connection costs, and also to have these welcome side effects of the additional ownership and, and, and quality and long-term benefits. Then there's this very, very low-hanging fruit, or that, that's the way I perceive it, uh, at least, which is this non-revenue water. And you, you show that non-revenue water account for 77 liters per capita and per day in the world, which is huge. When you think of it, when you see that there are initiatives like the the 50 liter home in the in the Netherlands, which uh, Paul O'Callaghan alluded to when we were having that discussion on that on that microphone, so in places of the world you could be able to to run a full house with 50 liters, and we are still on average wasting 77 liters in non-revenue water. So uh, I don't have the, the the figure in in mind right now, but I think you say it's something like 58 billions of dollars, some 
correct my figure here, which the work could save every year by reducing this non-revenue water. So what are we doing with that? It's a really interesting question. And funnily enough, something happened since I wrote the book. Um, there was this wonderful talk a few months ago by a, a man working at Thames Water, London. And when they started for the first time to get the data from their smart meter rollout program. So instead of getting a meter reading, if they ever had one in the first place, every six months, they're now dealing with real-time data 24 hours a day. The average amount of water remained the same. It was still at around 140 litres per person per day. But what they discovered is, in fact, most people were using 120 and there were a small number who were using between two and 600 a day. The reason being, quite often, that they had a leak inside their house. And so when they realized, okay, we've now got the real granular data, what we have here is something like 30 to 50,000 people who need to be contacted fast. So their original program was going to be a general process of engagement with everybody in the Thames region. Program two, we have an emergency. Get in touch with all these people who are using exceptional water and say, look, there's something wrong about your water usage. And it almost certainly is costing you money. So they did that and things might start to change for the better. Now, the thing is, there's, there are two types of non-revenue water. There's the water which is lost within the house, which is up to 30% of all lost water. And then there's the water lost within the network. Again, once you start having metering, you can, uh, and especially smart metering, you can start getting a real handle on how much water is being introduced to the network, how much is the customer consuming, and therefore what is being lost in the system. From there, you, know, you can start looking at the, each district and saying, okay, this is the bad one. And from there, we're now seeing genuinely interesting uh, leakage detection technologies emerge. So, for example... Now, traditionally, you knew, you knew when there was a leak, when suddenly water is spurting up in the street, or even worse, when a building collapses, because the leak has been going along, it's been washing all the water, the soil underneath the house, and all of a sudden the foundation is sitting on water or air. That's a real problem in some places. So the first thing to do is, you know, with real leakage detection is to be able to make a hierarchy of leaks. At the bottom, you have the insidious little localized leak, which, yes, is losing water, but it's quite a low amount and it's a low priority. If, on the other hand, you're going to do a program of upgrades and so on and so forth, it's on there. Then you have your standard leak. Okay, that's a medium priority. You know, we start to do a fault rectification program and then finally you identify which ones even though there's no visible manifestation of this actually bursts and you say okay that's an emergency we deal with that so you can for the first time ever you can start having an informed hierarchy of responses to leakage and compared with the cost of the assets themselves smart metering smart leakage detection and so on is remarkably cheap so it is possible. Uh, another technology technique is pressure optimization, because the more pressure you have within a network, the more water gets forced out through leaks. If you can have 
the ideal pressure throughout the network, that can cut leaks by 20 to 50%. So, you know, again, it's coming to getting to an acceptable amount of leakage. It's very rare. To, there's no such thing as zero leakage. And some of the, the best systems in the world are 3 to 5%. I think anything below 10% is good. If I get you right there, it boils down to having the right data. Because as soon as you start having these smart meters and also maybe s smart pressure regulation on, on the network, you, you give some examples in, in the book around that, swiftly you, you, you have a better insight. And if you have better insight, then you know where to act. And of course, you can put priorities and start where it brings the most. You write that that may well be the first positive effect and largest positive effect of the SDG 6 to have this, this better view, this better overview, better understanding of data. When you say that, how important is this, this data? And when you speak of data, is it linked to the digitization or is there more to it? It is simply crucial. Uh, there's the old maxim, um, what you cannot measure, you cannot man manage. And so, yes, you have to know what on earth your assets are and how... Uh, let alone how they are performing. Uh, if you can start getting on top of that, we move into the era of informed decision-making. Um, whereas too often in the past, water has been, even when you've got good engineers out there, the information they're given means that they've been able to do little more than inspired guesswork. So to come back, for example, on uh, leakage as an example, uh, traditional technology sometimes meant that you got an idea that there was a burst within plus or minus 20 to 50 meters. Now you can get it down to a couple of meters. So instead of having to dig up a whole road, bam, go straight to where the trouble is, sort it out. Minimum disruption compared to the old way and much less cost. And right up to the macro level, so that governments can actually understand what are the problems and how can we respond to them. And yeah, if you take something like um, in Britain, in England and Wales, back when water was privatized in 1989, because all billing was done by how much your house cost, no one bothered to meter. And because no one bothered to meter, there was no idea about leakage. Leakage only emerged two years or so after privatization. And it said that there was this absence of information. And this, this is information about things that matter, things that are important. So what we would hope to do is get a virtuous spiral, more information, better decisions. Therefore, we know better what we need information about, even more informed decisions and so on and so forth. And then you look at some of the really well-managed utilities, especially, for example, Singapore and uh, some of the Northern European utilities, they are running a tight ship. What you just said about these consequences of privatization in, in the UK leads me to a very subjective question. I was just wondering, I know that you write in the book, it's not about private versus public. So I'm not trying to trick you here, but still I was under the impression, which was a bit renewed in our discussion just minutes ago when you were mentioning how Chile went from bottom to top, that the best possible scenario is private management of water under a tight watch of the public authority. Right. Um, it's an interesting one. Um, I would actually call myself a critical friend of the private sector. I believe where 
private participation can can demonstrably do better than the status quo, it should be considered. Where it demonstrably cannot, it should not be. And there's a rather quite interesting one here, for example, in Singapore, Public Utilities Board's remit is that they do everything, and of course it's completely government controlled. However, if a external actor can run a facility for less, especially for new assets, then it goes out. So, for example, some major new wastewater treatment and reclamation plants and desalination plants are being run on 30-year or so concessions. And of course, the assets there will ultimately revert back into the hands of the government. Looking back, I do wonder if when they privatised the sector in England and Wales, what they should have done is not privatise the assets, but privatise the management. Because what you now have is things like pension funds controlling water assets, which in the case of one or two utilities in Britain has been problematic, to say the least. Because you know, there's a conflict of interests. Whose interest are you really honestly acting for? So if in Britain, let's say, all what had happened is that you'd had a comprehensive concession award for 30 years, apart from anything at the end of that 30 years, there's a mighty incentive for the concession holder to show that they performed really strongly and therefore they deserve another 30 years. And if they've actually performed poorly, sorry, gentlemen, goodbye. Privatisation in the early days was hit and miss. And it's one quite an interesting thing which I've followed, uh, trying to follow the fate of lots of contracts. And up to about 2000, 2005, quite a high number of contracts were being lost. Because, uh, especially the municipality or the government said, you know, this is unsatisfactory, we're taking it back. Uh, the worst worst example was the contract which lasted four days. Uh, <laughs> whereas La Paz and El Alto in um, Bolivia was very much a political reappropriation of the assets. In the last 10 years or so, on the other hand, the great majority of contracts which have ended have been at their agreed expiry date. There was a lot of pretty questionable behaviour in the early days. And uh, one of the interesting things is that what you have these days is far more local management, local involvement, uh, rather than half a dozen countries bestriding the globe. So in a sense, you know, privatization or really private public participation has matured somewhat. I can easily believe, certainly of the urban population, there's scope for 25, 30% of the population being served by the private sector. But there'll be a lot of areas where quite simply, no, it's a leap too far. You do want the private sector to be involved in specialist services. And of course, in the provision of support services, technology, and so on and so forth. But there'll be large swathes of the war sector where I suspect the private sector can't bring enough to the table to justify being involved there. I would have a ton more questions, but I'll take two last ones in that in that deep dive. And just drawing on what you just said, I was wondering if the right size of stuff would not be this enormous utilities like, like we have. You also address point of use, point of entry in the book, and you address decentralized treatments. And I'm wondering if the right size, which would bring 
people in to have their ownership, as we discussed minutes ago, which would draw uh, private companies in at a sizable chunk of a market and still deliver some scale effects would be that decentralized size. What's your, your subjective opinion on that? There can be quite often a lot of scope for, especially away from big cities, possibly more uh, decentralized and indeed possibly you know, community-owned systems. Point of use is very much depends on the circumstances. I, where we have unsatisfactory services, and it's going to be years or even decades before they are satisfactory, point of use is an extremely important halfway house because that means at least people get access to safe water. In our case, we lived on a farm for 19 years before moving to this house, and we had our water from a spring and a rather rough and ready network. So in those days, we had to just treat it because the water, very, very lightly, because the water was somewhat acidic and corroded the pipes. Uh, but when we moved, we suddenly noticed how strange the water tasted, because we simply weren't used to chlorine. Uh, so, the, so the one thing we have done is we've been put in a POU um, chlorine remover in our kitchen, you know, just purely for aesthetic reasons. And that sort of thing, there's always a case for that. It all also really depends, you know, having lots and lots of pipes lim linking communities up and so on and so forth may have too high a cost. It's, it's really, it's a base, it's comparing the cost of, of little treatment works against the costs of lots of piping. And I think that what is crucial here is that one size does not fit all. Every country, every society, every river basin has its characteristics. And we need to be flexible and we need to be creative to look for that elusive but attainable balance. I'll take, uh, as promised, the last question in that deep dive and has to do with this a bit with this decentralized aspect and of closing the loop. Actually, you give a figure about reuse in the book where you say that you, you see reuse taking four times the importance of desalination to cope with the, the water stress. And I was wondering, there's a lot of objective data to support that assertion, but how do you factor in the acceptance of people? It's very difficult, very difficult indeed. One thing you can tell them is Windhoek in Namibia they have been now running a water reuse plant for direct, straight back to the customer, water reuse. And as far as I know, they had never encountered a problem for it. Now, the water is genuinely potable. The problem is, is what you might call the yuck factor. So in Australia, for example, there was this town called Tumawara where they wanted to have water reuse, but the populists said, we don't want to be known as Poonarara. So... Congratulations. They, what they more or less did was they got lots of money from everybody and they put it in the middle of the town and they set it on fire. So instead of having an economical, effective water system with water reuse incorporated into it, they spent, they wasted 165 million Australian dollars pumping and piping the water in from a distant source. Congratulations. That's populism. Very likely the most pragmatic middle way is, for example, what's being done in Singapore, where they make use, first of all, of indirect non-potable. That means all the in, in industrial customers now expected to use reclaimed water for their process water and so on and so forth. 
Uh, and then they have indirect potable, whereby they, even though the water is completely clean, instead of putting it back into the distribution network, they put it into reservoirs where it is treated again. In engineering terms, this is called the magic mile. Uh, there's something about releasing effluent or whatever into a river and then picking it up a mile down, a key, one and a half kilo down downstream and treating it and putting back into the network. And everyone says that's perfect. There are various cases around the world, but I think in London, water can be taken out and treated and put back in again five or six times down the length of the Thames in an extreme case. And something like the Rhine, a long continental river, you are talking about water which has been around a bit. Um, so I think it's going to be always be quite hard to make a effective case for direct potable even though the case out there exists. However, um, generally speaking, industrial, municipal, and so on and so forth, use of uh, water is usually two to three times higher than it is for uh, domestic water. And that means that all the water that is reclaimed from domestic sewage and so on and so forth could simply be applied to non-potable uses with a little imagination. And so it's quite likely that we can elegantly sidestep the problem in many cases. Well, I think we scratched the surface of your book, honestly. We are one hour in roughly and, and, and still, I mean, it's a wealth of information. So for anyone wanting to go a bit more in depth, there are so many facts, figures. I mean, the Poo story is only one of the of the several shame stories that you have in the book, but there, there's also very cool story I can quote, for instance, the New York City story where they leveraged a, a bit of, let's say, system thinking instead of jumping to conclusion, they, they thought of, of, of river basins. So just to, to say that there are several examples that we, we, we cannot just take right now for time reasons, but for anyone wanting to, uh, to go more in depth, I'd recommend reading your, your, your Global Water Funding book. And if it's fine with you, I propose you to switch for the rapid fire questions to close our discussion. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last segment, I'll have short questions aiming for short answers. If you need more time, I'm not cutting the microphone. But my first question is going to be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? In a sense, it was the one where I was doing work with the World Bank on capital efficiency, because someone was paying me to look for examples where we can save money by create, thinking creatively about how we get goods and put them together. What's your favorite part of your current job? It's probably looking for new ideas, especially in academe. Uh, so for example, a few weeks ago, a paper came out in Nature suggesting a new form of water treatment, potentially which would make a variant of hydrogen peroxide, which they estimate to be 10 to the power of 7 to 10 to the power of 8 more effective than chlorination and leaves no residues. So that's the theory. If the reality can be as hundredth as good as that, we are transforming water. Well, aside from that very promising one, what is the trend to watch out in the water industry? I think, and I've been saying this for a few years, I'm afraid, but Keep your eye on smart water. As it starts to move from being clever ideas and excited talks at conferences 
into delivering practical benefits, especially and most importantly, when individual innovations are knitted together into a coherent and more effective whole. So incremental savings, incremental improvements, all of a sudden start gelling into very large improvements. What's the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least? The most is trying to get the data and trying to make a case for looking at things with a new pair of eyes. The least is when you get send the project in, uh, you get the money and you get no feedback. So in a sense, you feel you know, you've just been there, you've been paid just to tick boxes and say, oh, yes, we employed a consultant to look at this. And that is, that's yes, you want to know you got it right or you got it wrong. Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? I have to declare an interest here. Global Water Intelligence magazine is definitely one of the best. Uh, and another one is uh, it's on the web and it's free. It's called Smart Water Magazine. And every day it does half a dozen, a dozen news stories. And again, they are quite good at keeping a nose out for what the journals are publishing. When we were preparing for that interview in, in our exchanges, you mentioned that you're working on your next book. What will it be about? It's very much a, well, put it this way, I have an agent and he wants me to prepare the material to his satisfaction to send to the publisher. But the essence of the book is going to be about rethinking the whole of water and trying to transcend a view that water is just an endless series of obstacles and barriers into what happens when we really start to think optimistically. So it's not what are we faced with, but what we can do. Will you have one hour from me when you are on the media tour for that next book? <laughs> oh, <laughs> watch this space. But I would, I would hope, I'm, I'm hoping it'll come out next year because I, I wrote my first book on water in 2012. And in a sense, the one part of the book will be the journey of my understanding 10 years hence. So I'll make, make sure I'm, I'm available in 2022 to, to have you on that microphone. Good, good. <laughs> Last question. Would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite as soon as possible? Oh, I certainly would. I think it's good value for money. Well, funny enough, you know, if you asked a consultant to produce a study like that for you, um, you would be paying tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds. So for tens of pounds, here it is. Global water funding, innovation and efficiency as enablers for safe, secure and affordable supplies. At your friendly Amazon shop now. Well, David, it's been a, a pleasure. I think we make a good tour. And, um, pleasure likewise. I really subscribe to your recommendation to read that book. I think it's, a, it's an eye-opener to many, many aspects of, of, of this very trendy SDG6, but sometimes really overlooked i have to say when i compare it with what you you write about it so i hope to have you again for your next book and thanks a lot it'll be a pleasure thank you thanks for listening to don't waste water this podcast was brought to you by gf piping systems loved this episode head over to apple podcast to subscribe rate and leave a review see you next time